Welcome to Essential Coaching Conversations with Kyle and Asim. The real, relevant, necessary conversations to help you navigate coaching, teaching, learning, and life. Welcome in, coaches, to The Real, episode 39, last week being a special edition episode for our birthday. Um, before we get started, want to wish a very happy birthday to my partner in crime right here, Kyle Cavanaugh. His birthday was well, at the time of this recording yesterday, um, but very, very happy birthday to you, my friend. Thank you very much, man. It was a good one. What'd y'all do? Uh well, I worked all weekend uh, leading up to it, so that was fun. Um, but I actually got to have a really nice day on Sunday. Went to the golf course with Megan and Kendall, and we got to spend a little family time together outdoors. It was a beautiful day. Um, nice, you know, sort of spring, April, Louisiana day, if those could exist. But we had one on Sunday, and uh, it was really, really nice. Got to do that and then went to dinner uh, with some friends. Uh, for my actual birthday and of course ate some ate, ate a few cupcakes as we know i'm, I'm a big fan go. of cake and cupcakes so I was, I was able to knock a few of those back love it love it love it love it love it cake is your favorite food is that correct it is 100 percent. 100 percent your favorite food everybody out there right now if you could just go get some cake in honor of kyle's birthday breakfast and lunch and dinner that. yes breakfast lunch and dinner cake three ways um, today, episode 39, I am dedicating today's episode to one of the best running backs of our generation, Stephen Jackson, uh, from the, from the, uh, the St. Louis Rams at the time. Yeah, I'm going to go. So with being my birthday and getting a little nostalgic and thinking, thinking back, um, you know, we grew up in the nineties and I don't think there was anything like sport wise, like nineties baseball was is is like a huge it's a big deal tug tug for me you know looking at baseball cards and you know thinking you're all going to play in the major leagues and all that just back when i don't know baseball was just it felt different back then i guess to me um so i'm going to go daryl strawberry um who who wore 39 towards the latter end of his career um spent most of his time in the mets in the 80s i'll give you that but um you know me as a kid when i was playing baseball uh, about that time, Daryl Strawberry was obviously a pretty big deal um, and played, finished up with, I think, a year with the Giants. And then he went and finished out his career with the, the Yankees, um, which I was not a Yankees fan. But um, anytime I can kind of look back and reflect on childhood 90s baseball, uh, that that's that's pretty cool to do. That's it's one of those things that you will remember where you were the first time you you like saw a home run live for the first time or like, you know, I wasn't a huge baseball fan growing up, but I remember we used to go to games and like, you know, we even go to like minor league games cause tickets were like $5. Right. And mm -hmm. like, you know, you just, it's, it's fun. The atmosphere at a baseball game is a blast. And you know, Daryl strawberry climbing the wall for catches and you know, he walks. So guys like Tory Hunter could run. So right. You know, that's a great, uh, a great shout out for a 39. Um, and for those of you out there that are Mets fans, tough break. Um, I feel like your life as a sports fan is probably worse than Kyle mentioning Daryl Strawberry's career with the Yankees. Uh, so I think it'll be okay. Um, today, Kyle, today we are going to continue our conversation from last time 
Um, last time we talked a lot about skill and technique and how they can coexist, what the differences are. And I think today, as we talked in the pre-show, um, thinking about how we evaluate skill and technique and then also develop skill and technique. And I think some of this will probably turn into a recruiting conversation. I think some of this will probably turn into a transfer portal conversation. Um, and yeah, I, I really think that we have an opportunity to have not just like a, a, a salient discussion about these things, but kind of pose some of those questions to listeners about them too, about like what makes a really good player a really good player? And are we discounting certain players because they have certain traits in their technique, but realistically they are very skilled and they would help your program, but you write them off very quickly. Um, you know, here in the latter part of April, you know, women's basketball just had their first live period this past weekend. So everybody was out. There were thousands of players being evaluated, some of whom probably shouldn't have been, uh, out there. And we'll talk a little bit about what the alternative to that is as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's certainly some disappointment when that message doesn't come after you just spent all this time kind of showing your game off. And some of that might be that you're not ready to be recruited. And some of that might be that maybe the skill that you possess wasn't as evident because your technique didn't fit into a box. And so we're going to talk about all of those things today, but I want to throw it to you. Um, it, particularly when we talk about this idea of evaluating skill for yourself and trusting yourself to make a decision as a coach. And so, you know, you and I have both been around the game for, for a long time. I think this is pretty true at every level, pretty true at every, um, in, in most every sport that there's maybe this common belief that if a player is not being recruited, all it takes is one to then start sort of this waterfall that one school or one coach has to have confidence in this one player in order for other coaches to look at them and say, oh, yeah, I see what you see. I'm going to offer them, too. Um, so I want to think I think we'd start the conversation right there about this idea of waiting to take a flyer or take a chance on a player until somebody else has validated them first and how that ties into skill and technique evaluation. Yeah, and one quick disclaimer here, because we're going to look at this more, probably it's going to come off like the lens through like college basketball recruiting. But again, as we sort of preface in each of these episodes, this doesn't just have to be college. It doesn't just have to be basketball. Um, even if you're a high school coach, you know, you're you're evaluating junior high players at feeder schools, et cetera. And so these things, you know, these concepts still trickle down and I think they ring true. Um, but to your point, like, and I'm not seeing, I'm not saying this, like as a person who works in college, I see, I saw this more as a high school coach working with recruitable athletes and players that were talented enough to play at the next level. And, you know, on that Simsboro team, I, I mean, I, I remember, you know, the head coach there told me like, Hey, we got 12 guys. Like, I think 10 of these guys could go play somewhere. Now, somewhere might be Juco. It might be an AI, it might be D2, D3, D1. And I remember thinking like, that's crazy, but no, he was right. Like we had 10 of those 12 legitimately could, could have gone. And I want to say that like eight of them ended up doing it. 
um, at least signing somewhere and having an opportunity to, to go play at the next level. And for some of those guys, they were massively under-recruited uh, for their, their talent level and what I feel like they could have done and should have done. But it was as if everybody else was waiting around for the validation of that player being good because they didn't want to take a shot on a player from a small school. They didn't want to take a shot on a player who didn't have an offer already. They didn't want to. And so what that tells me is what exactly are we evaluating to begin with and whose eye are we actually trusting? Like if we have a system in place as evaluators and as coaches and teachers and developers, and we say that like, this is our evaluation plan, this is our development plan, then should we then not trust our own eye? You know, so is, is this another yet another instance of us telling on ourselves when we're not willing to be the first person to pull the trigger on that offer for that particular kid because we need to wait around to find out if a comparable school is after them? Or if I'm a if I'm a power five coach and all this kid has is like low D ones to mids, but I like something about them and I see something nobody else sees, do I have the confidence to go ahead and offer that player? even though they might have a much, much lower offer base. And then the reverse of that is true. I see something in a player who I think might fit here, but I'm a low D1. But all of their offers right now are mids and maybe a high or two. Like, does that stop me from swinging for the fences for this kid? Because I'm afraid of failing and, and being told no. But how do you ever go out and like land the big fish if you don't try to, if you don't cast bait? You know what I mean? Like you've got to be willing to put yourselves out there and actually go for some of those things. But if we're constantly looking to our left and right to see who everybody else is looking at, then who's actually doing the recruiting? Who's actually doing the evaluation? And do we have a plan in place or are we not trusting our own eye? And I think there's a couple of different, you know, scenarios or answers that it, it could be there. But, you know, you hear it. I think you, I think you see this stuff all the time. And if you're a high school coach out there, maybe you've got kids right, right now that are kind of going through this. It's like, man, if we could just get a scene one offer, you know, even if it's a, a D2 offer, you know, if that D2 school offer, then the other D2 offer, you know, across the state lines, they'll offer. And if they will offer, then their rival across town will offer because there's no way they can allow you to get out of their, you know, Zone, you know, basically recruiting zone, they're not going to allow somebody else to come in and take a kid from their area. So they'll then offer you. And then if you can get enough of those, then maybe that'll pique the interest of somebody else. And so it really just kind of takes me back to this question, you know, from a few episodes ago of, you know, what is skill to begin with? Do we, do we have a definition for it? Do we know it when we see it? Can we identify it? Can we develop it? And what exactly are we looking for? within this hopefully robust holistic system that we have that we're supposed to be fitting all these pieces into because again if it's if we're recruiting surely off of like fomo and the grass is greener and we go out and we just get you know the the 10 to 12 like shiniest trinkets that we could afford but those pieces don't go together then again like what what are we you know really trying to to do and really trying to solve um, and so, I, yeah, I think that's a, a, a really great way to, to maybe tee this conversation up. And again, just kind of asking that next question of like, okay, well, if we are evaluating, what are we evaluating? How do we define it? How do we know it when we see it? 
And can we actually trust ourselves to recognize it when we see it? When you're talking about that, it reminds me uh, simply of the word first, awareness. And, you know, our like our pathway of Raqqa obviously makes sense for this in a big way. But I think that even the reflective part, like we can all say like, yeah, I've reflected on what's important to me. I doubt many coaches have actually done that. I think especially if you have seen the way that many of these evaluations are written, it's kind of like, you know, one line, like good body runs the floor hard. Can put the ball on the floor? Question mark. Like, okay, what else is there? How does this player fit into how we want to play? And so I think like, that reflective piece, I think maybe even is sort of like faux reflectiveness, but if there's an awareness of what actually matters to you, and this is where I think coaches do get it right sometimes, where they have a really clear idea of, hey, I'm looking for kids who can shoot off the, you know, off of these screens because we play this way. Mm-hmm. And if they come in with that skill set, it's one less thing I have to teach them. But then the opposite is also true. We write kids off for what they can't do. And we've talked about this in an earlier episode about the idea of using asset-based judgment of let's not write them off for what they can't do. What can they do to contribute to your program? Everybody has some sort of value. And it took me a long time to learn that lesson, right? Like one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in my career was evaluating skill in one singular way. And when kids didn't fit into that, I was like, nah, they, they aren't going to, like, I can't put them on the floor. Yeah, they may not screw it up in practice. That's a pretty low bar, right? Of like, okay, we're going we're gonna to add this kid to the team because they won't screw it up in practice. Okay. All right. Like, that's, all right, well, then we're probably not going to have very many practices because I'm not going to be here very long, you know, if those are the types of players that I keep bringing in. And so, all that said having an awareness of what is actually important and what you consider to be skill is extremely important. You can't go to one of these events and like I, you know, you think about the amount of money and I'm I'm scratching my head. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see it. But for those that are listening, I'm literally like have my hand to my head because the sheer amount of money that is poured into these evaluation weekends and these scouting services that go out and evaluate players. Why? Like if we don't even have clarity on what we are evaluating for, and we don't have an awareness of how players could fit and we can project them into our lineup and say, all right, this player has these skills and if you haven't, you know, if you haven't listened to the last episode, go back and listen to the last episode about where we kind of talk about what skill is. There are so many players who get overlooked because of what you talked about with not getting that first offer from a particular level, or, you know, they might have things that are a little bit outside of our reach, but maybe we could build a relationship with them. I don't know, like all things being equal, maybe they would come to us. We talk ourselves out of a lot of things in evaluation. We talk ourselves out of, oh, man, ah, her hand is like on top of the ball instead of to the side of the ball. And, oh, her thumb is a little loose on the shot. I don't know. Are you kidding me? Does the shot go in? Does she take good shots? 
Is it repeatable? Is it a positive habit that she has? Can she sprint the floor and get into it from multiple footwork? Like I used to be that coach too. And Kyle, I think you're going to laugh when I say this. We all probably said this at one point. Oh, I can walk in the gym and in 10 seconds, I can tell you whether that player is good or not. I think that's actually coach speak 101 that really actually doesn't make sense. You might get an initial feeling about a kid or about a player or whatever. But when you really sit down and you watch them and you see the nuance of their game, it probably takes five, seven, ten minutes of watching that kid to form a real initial impression. And then you got to watch them again in a different context to see if they're doing the same things or not. And that's what I would always tell, like, say on recruiting calls, like, hey, I've watched you play 10 times. Here's what I've noticed all 10 times. So this, to me, is your character as a player, good or bad. Here's what we can work on. Here's the plan to help you. And when you break it down that way, number one, you're certainly spending a lot of time watching these players. And number two, you've evaluated their skill based on the definition that skill is anything that can be improved. Have they improved their best skills over the course of time that you've been watching them? Have they improved their worst skills? Have they plateaued in their skill level based on your evaluations of them over the course of time? But if all you've evaluated them on is, well, she runs the floor hard, has a good strong body, likes the crossover, you're telling on yourself that you don't know how to evaluate skill. And therefore, you end up with players that either A, shouldn't play in your program, B, shouldn't play at your level, or C, aren't going to contribute in the long run. And you're just hoping that those players will come in and maybe develop, but all they do is they get older, they don't get better. Yeah, to your point on impressions, so thinking about like the biases around first versus second impressions. So who, you know, if, if you go watch a kid play and you were high on them, you liked some of the things that you saw, and then you go back and you watch them a second time and everything they did was downgraded, was slightly less, you're going to have a, a negative view on that particular player. It almost sort of overrides your first impression because it's the last impression, right? Like it's the most, it's recency bias. But if I go watch a player and I don't love everything that they do, and I don't necessarily want to watch them again, but they might happen to be at another event or whatever, but I happen to see them again and everything that they do is upgraded the second time and it is slightly better. Then I walk away thinking like, oh, maybe that's somebody that I should be looking at. Which of those two players are you actually going to recruit? If you can only watch one. They're the same kid. They both right. had a good day and they both had a bad day. But then what becomes sort of the tiebreaker there? And if it's, we don't know what exactly we're looking for, or it's recency bias and it's the last thing that I saw, or it's, well, kid A has, you know, three offers from schools within our district or our conference or our region and player B doesn't, then I'm going to go after player A. So which of those two things, like, again, it comes back to like, what exactly are we looking at if the moment in time at which we saw that can affect our 
opinions and our views on that. And then mm-hmm. kind of something else to you said, like we see something from a player and then we have this, while at the same time, we don't know what we're evaluating. We also have this extremely like inflated view of ourself as an evaluator because we Bingo. see something one time and we think, Oh, that kid does that every time. And so, you know, a kid drives, you know, to their right three times in a row and scores. And we're like, Oh, they can't go left. Mm-hmm. They just scored right three times in a row, probably because that was what was available. And they or made a that's right not going to work. That's not going to work when they get here at this level. Right. And Oh, by the way, like we forget the fact that why was that open? Well, their teammates understand spacing there. You know, we got two good shooters over here on the strong side, 45 and zero. And the defense actually knew what they were doing too, because they couldn't help off of them. And actually that's a really great like moment of actual basketball. Mm-hmm. And we boil all that down to, well, the kid can't go left. When there was actually a shit ton of stuff there that we could evaluate and look at it being extremely positive and like, oh man, like all these kids on the floor know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Or we see a kid who happens to go left one time because they've been like locked onto their hip for an entire game and the coach has been screaming at them, okay, you got to go left. And you happen to walk up on that court and you see them go left and you and you're like oh they love the left hand mm-hmm. can go left and it's right. like no they don't not necessarily that was a last resort and it just happened to work out because there was a that, constraint right there was a that constraint team, and they had to adjust right and that team was terrible defensively there was no help and there was no you know pressure release where they had to play off to or kick it with their left hand to an open jump or anything like that So we're just looking at like the one thing that happened and it's end result. And that's all we're looking at. We're not taking a step back and evaluating like the context, the environment that we're in or anything like that. And again, we're we're talking about this through the lens of like collegiate recruiting, but take this down to your junior high tryouts, to your varsity tryouts, to your JV tryouts. These are the same things that are happening because you only have, if, if you're a high school coach and you're running a tryout, maybe you're lucky and you can do this over two or three days, but a lot of you out there, you get one day. Mm-hmm. And you only get maybe two hours because the cheerleaders need the gym, you know, or something's going on. Like you don't have the luxury of this long drawn out evaluative process. And that, 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 that's a very big constraint on you. And so you're having to make sort of these more snapshot judgments based on something. So the moment a kid does something, we're like, oh, that's who that kid is all the time. When we don't have any basis for their character or anything like that. And, and, and through the lens of like asset-based judgment, as you said. So when we say that we're going to like, ev- I'm going to evaluate a person's character in recruiting, what do we really mean? And a lot of times it's this Twitter speak of like, oh, they picked water bottles up and they put the shopping cart back and they came out and they shook the referee's hand and they did all that. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with those things, but that's not necessarily the character of who they are as a basketball player. The character of who they are as a basketball player is the repeatability of those positive habits. If you saw them go pick up a water bottle and shake the ref's hand, that's great. But that might be the only time they actually did that because they knew you were in the stands. They've never done it all year, but that happened to be the one time. But your ability to notice that they sprint the floor eight out of 10 times Mm-hmm. your ability to understand that they knew on a dribble drive where to space to, even though they never even touched the basketball, but you figure out a look into their awareness and their, their IQ quote unquote IQ as a basketball player. 
do we have those things that we're looking for in the midst of all of this? Or again, are we just essentially ball watching and waiting to see who's going to make quote unquote, make a play. And then if they don't, if they do make a play, we will then sit there and nitpick how they made the play, which will take us back to that skill versus technique discussion. And do we care necessarily the technique of how they got it done? Or do we actually care about the fact that they can get it done? And then are we then not telling on ourselves of, well, if that's how they play now as a junior in high school, we don't have the ability to develop them once they get here. And again, that's part of our jobs as as their next coach at their next level. If you're going to judge a, a junior high kid based on who they were in seventh and eighth grade, I feel like that's a bit of us telling on ourselves as evaluators and developers because we're saying we can't take the natural skill set that that kid might have, natural in quotes, and actually be able to improve upon it either. It's so funny to have this conversation in the midst of sort of like a recruiting time because I I can sit on the sideline and watch whatever age group, whatever game, And all I'm really thinking about is how does this player contribute to 100-point games? Where where are their points coming from? Where are their points going to come from? How many points are we going to get based on the skill they have right now? And, like, I'm not saying 100-point games is a perfect system. I think you and I would agree that it's better than not having something and it's probably when we think about good better best i would say it's approaching best and so you know for example like i coached a player who was four foot eleven listed at five two and she's probably the best player i've ever coached in my life she contributed the most to any possessions in hundred point games But if I had been any other coach and said, you know what, we're going to run this offense, you're going to have to go through these patterns and do all of these things, and maybe we can generate you a few shots here and there, is Gabby San Diego, Gabby San Diego for me in high school, the same Gabby San Diego that she is at CNU right now playing for a national championship. And the same Gabby San Diego playing AAU, where she had sort of an unbridled approach. What helps her develop the most? I think what helps her develop the most is her learning the game through a different lens than we're going to run this. This is what we do here. You got to have this quote unquote skill to enter the ball and then cut away. And you may or may not touch it again. Instead of, hey, we want to play this way, so be ready. The ball is probably coming back to you. Are you spacing appropriately? Have you sought the best space? Right? Are we seeking as a team? And how is your gravity impacting that? And so that becomes a skill to think the game when we don't place limits on the players in our own minds of like, oh, well, I don't know if she can initiate offense. Ah, she's kind of short. You know, there's a kid that I I talked to last year who was like, 
five foot four, five foot five, dynamic left-handed point guard. And a lot of schools might look at her and be like, ah, she's she's kind of short. I don't know if she's I don't know if she can hang in our league. All right. If that kid with that level of skill can't hang in your league, you must be playing in the SEC. I don't know what to tell you. Right. She ain't gonna be like, you know, Aaliyah Boston's running mate in Indiana, but she sure as crap can play for your team. You're choosing to see things and and establishing that first impression as the way you are going to treat that player moving forward. And so I say that to ask you this question. Do you think we could say that our first impression in evaluating skill? All right. So this player is XYZ. All right. This is kind of like a two, two part ish question. Does that form the basis of how we treat them moving forward? And do their limitations become fixed because we thought that at the beginning when we didn't know how to evaluate their skill? So this episode is turning into a tell on yourself episode. <laughs> what in some I mean, listen, this is this is essential coaching conversations at night. Right. This is out. This is late night essential coaching conversations. Let's tell, like, tell on yourself. Let's go. Let's do it. Yeah. Cause I, where you're, where my head goes here is like, okay, we're, we, again, we espouse these things. We coach speak these things into existence. We try to anyway. We're willing them growth mindset, get out of your comfort zone, blah, blah, blah. But yet we don't allow the players that we coach to have that room to grow. And then if, if we are willing, I, I think this is maybe the sort of the, the internal tug of war that I'm, I'm trying to get out of my head, but I'm not doing a very good job explaining it because it is late at night. I'm either going to be more of a fixed minded person and not allow that person to get better. Or if I am going to admit that that person is getting better, I then have to admit that I was wrong about them in the first place. So I'm, I'm put in this crossroads as, a, as an individual, as a human being, either admit that I was wrong or stay stubborn mm. about my initial first impression to begin with. And the only way I can think of in this moment to basically solve those two issues is don't go into it with such a closed-minded, fixed you know, point of view to begin with. and Understand that everybody's got the opportunity to get better if we view all of these things, again, as skill Hmm. and that their skills are not fixed and that they can be improved. And then again, a big part of my job is to help improve said skills. Now, again, like some coaches are going to sit there and be like, well, I got to make a decision about them this or I, I don't have time to do this or I don't have time to do that. And I understand that like in some context, that is going to be the case. But that doesn't account for the players that you've had for four years. Mm-hmm. That doesn't account for the players that you started. You know, you're getting ready to sign. You just signed to 2023. You likely started recruiting some of your 23s back in 21, if not sooner. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there will be moments where, like, oh, I had a kid dip and go into the portal and I just got to go get somebody. I have to make a snapshot judgment. Okay, that's fine. 
but that's such a small percentage of your roster. And that one outlier doesn't get to be the basis for your character as a decision maker, Mm -hmm. the repeatability of your habits in decision making and how you're viewing things through this lens. And so I think that 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 is often where we get is we want to think that we know so much as Mm -hmm. coaches. We're so smart and our eye doesn't lie to us. So when we see something, we know for a fact that's what it is. But then in the same breath, we don't offer that kid until somebody else does mm-hmm. because we don't trust the eye. We said we just trusted. So I think that then brings up another couple of questions for me. This is what I like. I thrive on this conversation. I'm not going to lie to you because it is a telling on yourself conversation. I have had to do that work to reprogram my brain from when I worked in division one and just like grew like I didn't know what I didn't know. I think we all go through that, right? You don't know what you don't know. And then you have these reflective conversations and you're like, man, I was really telling on myself, repeating what all these other people said and going down Mm -hmm. those same paths of, well, we're not going to offer that kid until they offer that kid. Well, do you think she's good? Yeah. But like, she's not good enough yet. Well, what's going to make her good enough? Well, having an offer from that other school or that other level. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's dumb, right? Like not when you me, say it out me loud. me as a developer. I'm right. the reason they're going to get better. Say that. Right. Like if that, like when you say it out loud, it's so ridiculous. But we do this all the time. And mm-hmm. who, who really suffers is kids, right? Anybody can tell you who the best players are in the country. Like that's obvious. When you go watch like EYBL AAU teams player, whatever, like, yes, they have really, 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 really good players. We're not talking about the elite of the elite of the elite. We're talking about all the other 99% of the kids who probably slot in somewhere. And a lot of them just don't even get a shot because of all of those things. But so it, it brings up a couple of different things to me. And we'll get to the development part here in a second. One of the questions that I wrote down that I think we need to talk about as we're talking about evaluation of that skill and how we look at skill in a, in a vacuum almost, or in a silo of like, can they pass? Can they shoot? Can they catch? Can they do this? Like, you know, football quarterbacks is this is like a really good example of this. How's their technique on their drop back? Where are their eyes scanning? Do they have frosty feet? Like how light are they on their feet? Things like that, right? Is creativity a skill that is frowned upon in the evaluation process? Because this is going to lead us straight into the development conversation. And I see you yeah. thinking over there. So if you need some more time, I can vamp a little bit until, until you're ready to answer the question. Like, I want to say that it's not, but that, that tells me right then and there that, yes, it is. <laughs> like, we don't want to see it because we talked about creativity a little bit in, in uh, one of the last couple episodes on this with, and I believe you were talking about like Ovechkin mm. and how he's like one of the greatest goal scorers of all time. And anytime you ever hear about like the greatest of all time, goal scorers, shooters, whatever, one of the one of the first words to describe them is they're creative. Like Patrick Mahomes is a creative football player. Mm-hmm. Ovechkin is a creative player. Steph Curry. I think is we very talked creative. about like Ovechkin and Messi and Ronaldo and all that. Right. Yeah. M- Messi, Ronaldo, like those guys are creative, you know? And 
they're that's the reason why they're the best of the best, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's there are other people who have the same physical traits as they do, but they're not as creative or they don't have the solution oriented mind to figure things out as quickly as they do. And so I, I feel like we 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 will give the greatest their flowers when it mm-hmm. comes to creativity, but we don't trust the lower level. We don't trust the junior high kid. We don't trust, you know, your typical everyday Jane or Joe. So here's to the be coach creative. Speak. What you just said is the, here's the coach speak. You're not good enough to be that, to do that yet. Mm-hmm. Once you get good enough, you can throw that behind the back pass. Once you stop turning the ball over, you're allowed to do whatever you want. So how do I get that good? Mm. How do I develop that? How does, how does Messi become Messi? How does Jokic become Jokic? How do, how do those people get? And we're, and we're being like, we're, I, this is kind of my fault for taking us this direction. Cause I hate using like the, the, the goats. top right, 0.1% yeah. to like yeah. compare to everybody else, but take your, Take the top 1% in your league. Take the top mm-hmm. 1% in your high school. You know what I mean? Like, again, extrapolate yeah. it down to your level. What made them them? Right. And at some point, it had to be work. It had to be letting them loose. It had to be sort of, you know, taking the, the, those constraints off of them and allowing them to, to breathe and to fly and to be good and to to go and do and try. And then I think a lot of times it's like, well, they do that on their own. You know, they have, but the only, the only time and space they're going to get is when they're doing that on their own, or that's why they have to go. They feel the need to go get the skill trainer. Mm-hmm. The skill trainer will let them do whatever they want. Coach is tripping in practice. Well, let me do this in practice, but I can go over here. And if I pay this person 50 bucks an hour, they'll let me do whatever I want. So it's like we lament the fact that this this coaches versus skill trainers conversation, but in reality, like that often can become a space mm-hmm. where, as a coach, my players got they developed more, and not necessarily because the trainer was great or they had cones all over the floor or they were doing a drill. It's just because they let them breathe. They let them breathe and they let them explore. And I think that's, you know, we could go down that path of like learning environments and stuff like that. I mean, I feel like we've, we've covered a lot of that, but like the reason I bring that question up is so many players are afraid to take a chance because they don't want to be seen as some sort of maverick or some sort of like outside the box player. Because there's this common like coach speaky crap that they hear constantly of, you know, stick to the basics, be really fundamental, blah, 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 blah. And then you see like some of these players from from maybe from Europe or lower level players or smaller players or kids who've had constraints in their life. And they just like find a way to figure it out. And all of a sudden they're just shining on the court. And maybe they're overlooked because it's like, ah, I don't know. That kid seems uncoachable. Mm. No, they don't seem uncoachable. They just play with a little bit more flair than you're used to or than you would allow in your program because it has to be about what you would allow. 
And so it gets us back to the heart of this conversation, which is really about awareness about what you find to be important. Does it matter their technique when they go for a layup as long as they're shooting a nine? Now, I'm not saying that they have to turn it into this really difficult, you know, I used to use this phrase all the time with my players, like when I, a few years ago, I was like, hey, listen, it's not figure skating. You don't get extra points for adding a degree of difficulty. Let's try to make this as simple as we can. But simple doesn't mean like fundamentally and, you know, basic or technique. It's what's the simplest solution to this problem that you have. And in that way, you might be really creative in figuring out that simplest solution. But if we as coaches are not watching for that, now all of a sudden we've done those players and really our programs a disservice because we are watching, and it's sort of like to use your phrase, bullseye wrong target, we're watching for something that may never happen. And just because we have an archetype in our mind of what should happen doesn't mean that that player could not be successful in our program, provided we changed who who we think they are. Instead of having that fixed mindset of, well, this skill is what we need. We need one shooter in this. What? No, get as many of them as you can. And they will make you a better coach instantly because you can put them on the floor and the floor gets real wide, real fast when they're holding their space. All of a sudden, your ball handlers can actually get to the rim. All of a sudden, things, you know what I mean? Like, I think there's just something to that where we sort of penalize players at particular levels for being too creative for that level Mm. because they, you know, they're just like, uh, they shouldn't be like that with that quote unquote skill level that they have not realizing that their ability to solve a problem creatively is a skill. And we should be evaluating for that. In fact, you should look at it and say, you know what? That kid has some fluid creativity to him. That kid's like really engaged and like is constantly scanning to solve problems. What kind of, all right. So let's take that even a step further. What kind of adult do you think that kid's going to be if we truly believe that how you do anything is how you do everything? They're a problem solver on the court. They're creative on the court. There's, they're doing all these things. Like, How do we harness that? And all of a sudden, our department gets better because that kid's playing for us. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's something to that where like, it, and maybe it's not every coach. I, I, obviously, it's not every coach. I, didn't, I don't think anything is universally applicable. But I think there are certainly things that we penalize in this evaluation process as it pertains to skill and technique when the skill is not what was demonstrated by John Wooden 40 some odd years ago, you know, 60 some odd years ago. Not not hating on John Wooden, right? Like, obviously, one of the greatest coaches of all time. But skill does not exist in a vacuum. Creativity is part of skill. It is a skill itself. And we cannot, as a coaching, and this is where I like I'm going to plant my flag on this one. We cannot, as a coaching profession, penalize creativity in the evaluation process, and then get mad when players try to be creative because the solutions we have given them don't work, don't aren't enough. Yes, and now 
this whole thing has been the segue to the development part. So we got the kids on campus. They are a part of our program. What do we do with them? We dribble in place. Yeah. <laughs> we we develop everybody the same way. We we run around cones. Mm-hmm. We we do the same thing that everybody else does because I think I think the same insecurities that we have in the evaluation process bleed over into the development process. I'm doing XYZ drill because such and such coach does XYZ drill mm-hmm. and they've won three championships in a row. Such and such did this years ago here and they were successful. So that's why I'm doing it. Or I had success doing this 15 years ago here. So I'm going to keep doing it that way because eventually it'll work again. And again, it's sort of the same thing where like between the two first impressions, you coach somewhere for four years and you have two good years and then two bad years. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened? But if you had two bad years and then two good years, which coach are you going to hire? Mm-hmm. And everybody would say, well, hire the person that had the two good years at the end. But it's the same thing in the evaluation process. You're not coming back to watch the kid who had a bad first day mm-hmm. because you're not going to be willing to give them the second day even though they're the one that's more likely going to improve just because the law of averages says they're not going to be bad twice. Right. And if a kid is incredible and we show up to watch him again and we've built it up in in our head that they're going to be this amazing player, chances are they're not going to be an amazing player two days in a row. Like they're going to regress to the mean a little bit. And so even carrying that all the way into the development part, now we have them on campus and we're working with them every day. Well, Seam had a great day yesterday. I just don't know why he didn't have a good day today. Well, again, there's a thousand other things that could be factoring into not just why today was bad, but why today, why yesterday was good, Mm -hmm. which opens us up to a conversation. Should we even be labeling get days good and bad? It's a great question. You know, what constitutes a good day? What constitutes a bad day? Should good and bad even be a part of our vocabulary? Mm Mm-hmm. Are we, well, are we sort of that are we trying to make it feedback. that simple? Yeah. Right. It's like are that we, stupid binary feedback that I don't know who proffered that up, but like, yes, no, good, bad, like everything exists on a spectrum as, as if there's nothing in between mm-hmm. and there aren't, you know, reasons for this and that. And if we're the ones giving that feedback again, that is us. If I'm sitting there like judging everything as mm-hmm. yes, no, good, bad. Then again, I'm putting an awful lot of stock in my judgment, my evaluation. And that means that like what I'm saying goes and it just becomes a a, a very slippery slope, I think, to to bring this down to, um, especially when you're trying to factor in, you know, there's not one coach on a staff. Everybody's going to have to have a voice in this. Do Mm -hmm. we have an aligned? I mean, we're getting this like really like big picture kind of stuff and i think we maybe want to focus it more on like more in the micro yeah the day-to-day um, development piece yeah so i'll try to kind of steer it back that way but i think i think you're right i think it, it it's the development lens is very much like the evaluative one in that we're going to do what the person to our right and left are doing just because we we don't then want to stand out so we punish our players' creativity by stifling our own mm-hmm. or vice versa. And one of the best, this is why I love reading. 
because you read something in a book and you kind of half expect to get something out of it. And then the book throws you something you weren't expecting and it takes you somewhere else. And that's, that's the thing that I have enjoyed with any book that I pick up and eventually read is it will take me to another book and another book. And I don't even remember what the original book was, but it was talking about creativity. And, it, and the, 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 the author's point in the book on creativity was what is creative? Like, where does it come from mm -hmm. and what actually is it? And is it a skill? Like, can you improve upon it? And they basically just make the point, like, how do you become more creative? Like, go read a book on creativity. Go learn about creativity. Go learn about creative people. What makes them creative? Mm -hmm. And so they dropped a, I don't remember the name of this book either. I'm, I'm doing a bad job with these examples. But I went and bought that book and started reading it. And it was just kind of like little light bulbs going off. I was like, oh, my God, like, that's genius. Like, that is creative. And it's not hard. Mm -hmm. But you have to be. You have to be willing, I think, to sort of open your eyes to that awareness of like what could be just beyond your peripheral vision and be willing to look a little bit more beyond just our immediate right and our immediate left. Most people, I think, look straight forward most of the time. We're a little lucky if we if we do look a little right or left. Very, very few of us will actually turn around and see what's going on behind us. And those are the ones I feel like that are the most creative and those are the quote unquote best ones in whatever their particular field is. And I think, you know, to even take this into like a classroom conversation, those creative kids are the ones that get in trouble most of the time because we, you know, they're the ones that, that get a B plus when the other kids get an A because they didn't solve the problem mm -hmm. the way we told them to solve it. Right. But they got the same answer. And the B plus kid probably actually got a better answer in a lot of ways. But we knock the we knock the the process of it. We knock the progression. We knock the technique of it, of how they got there. But the B plus kid probably learned a lot more along the way to his or her answer, mm -hmm. whereas the kid that got the A just went literally like straight to the answer because that's the pathway you told me to. Mm -hmm. And yes, I got it right this time, but next time, like that doesn't guarantee you anything, right? Right. I mean, I think there's it, it, it sort of comes down and this is maybe precursor or prefacing to one of our next episodes about resources. But thinking about like, we don't have the time to do that. We don't have the time for you to explore solutions when I could just give it to you. And then when my solution doesn't work, it's your fault because you're not skilled enough to apply my mm -hmm. solution. You didn't execute it well enough. You didn't execute it, which was our chat on Monday. Um, you know, we just didn't execute. Well, what didn't we execute? Right? There should never really, I don't want to say never, but there should, should be fewer times than we sort of, fewer times than we allow there to be. Of times where we didn't execute something. When in most of the games that the people who are listening to this coach, the problems that are being presented are fairly unique in each situation. Because the context is always changing. And so, yes, there are patterns that exist. There are patterns of behavior that exist. You know, we might have an idea of how teams are going to rotate, things like that. And so... You know, I think about when I was in 
division one and I was in division one for a long time, whether in multiple roles. So, you know, I was, I was a manager, I was a GA, not in, in particularly in basketball, being around division one basketball, being around division one football, being around all of these things. And then as director of player personnel, director of ops, assistant coach, all those things. And only really in one place did I find that the summer workouts and sort of the player development, it was just so different than the other places I had been. I thought they were the ones that were crazy. And I say that to say, like, when I watched Sherry Cole and her staff work with their players, and then I talked to Sherry Cole afterwards and said, hey, like, tell me a little bit about kind of what you guys do, this, that, and the other. She said, everybody on our staff is a teacher. I don't really like to hire people that have never taught before. Everybody on our staff, and this was at the time, everybody on our staff has coached high school basketball. And they taught in a school. We are a teaching program. We are a development program here. And then when I would watch them practice, it was very much small side of games. It was very much breaking things down, starting with one-on-one every day, right? She had a thing. She's like, if you don't play one-on-one every day, you're going to lose a lot of games. And she learned that from somebody else. And then the other couple of places that I was, I, I had been, some of that existed, but it wasn't the central tenet of how they developed players. And so in my mind, it was like, if we don't have the time to do this, and this is maybe that woodenism coming back, if you don't have time to do it right the first time, when are you going to have time to do it again? And so maybe that gets into a little bit of the transfer portal thoughts too of with this quote-unquote generation, if you don't get it right the first time, they don't have time to wait for you to get it right the next time. And maybe that puts an immense amount of pressure on the coaching staff to like really hone in on that development, but that goes back to the evaluation piece. It goes back to the recruiting piece of like, hey, this is what we are going to do. And if congruence is success, if you did what you said you were going to do, does it stand to reason then kids might not transfer at the rates that they're transferring if they agreed to all of those things and they had some ownership in that? Yeah, and I I think portal-wise, and this is not just like, this is not all the coach's fault. I mean, again, there's a lot of of things and a lot of factors at play. Um, but I do think there is an element of, as I learned the other day, there's 27,000 kids in the portal across all levels, across all sports, 27,000, there's not 27,000 people in Ruston. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's more than everybody in Ruston would be in the portal. And so I don't think it's, this is just a, a hypothesis, but I don't think it's unfair or totally off base to say that a, a portion of the portal is because kids who are leaving should have never been there in the first place. And I say that either at their institution, their level, their whatever, mm-hmm. which ties directly back to the evaluative process. 
what we're about, like, why did we sign these three kids? Because we thought somebody else was going to get them. So we, we offered, you know, why did we, well, because of this, or we missed out on this other kid because we didn't think they were good because they were too creative. So we had to settle for this kid over here. Mm -hmm. And then they get there and like, ah, they didn't really work. And so then we trust our eye the next time and we recruit over that kid and then they got to go. And so now that kid's gone. And in a question to um, someone who spends time at a lot of these recruiting events, I asked this question. What percent? Well, let me preface with this talking about going back to baseball for a second, right? We had a minor league baseball team where I grew up, double A for the Giants, Shreveport Captains. Some of my greatest childhood memories are from Captains games. Go catch a foul ball, had the little ice cream in the helmets, you know, the whole, the whole deal. And I remember um, having some people that worked within the organization as I got a little older, and they talked about how, like, double A and even into triple A ball, there's only a, a, a handful, maybe like two or three players on a triple A club that are going to the majors. Mm -hmm. Like there's only so many of them that are going to actually get there, but we can't have a triple A club without all of these other guys. So like that first round, like projected pitcher who needs triple A work, we essentially have to go get a bunch of non-major leaguers Mm -hmm. just so he can pitch because mm -hmm. there's not enough to go around. And so that being said, like that conversation came up not too long ago. And I asked, I was like, okay, well, is that the same for a lot of these evaluation periods and these, these events that are put on, like what percentage of players that are actually at these events are truly recruitable for whatever particular level. So if there's, and it's, and it seems you spent more time at these things than I do. Like how many players are in one of these buildings at one of these large events, like run for the roses or boo Williams or Adidas nationals or, you know, man, championships in Orlando. I mean, these are big events, right? I'm putting you on the spot to do some math. Well, let's, all right. So I have a, I have a, a packet here in front of me and I don't know if you can tell how thick this packet is it's probably about, inch and a half thick eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper you know i mean i would say it, it some of the big live like the live period events you could have easily six seven thousand players across all the age groups and across all of the uh you know all of the skill levels and all like you know if there's like EYBL courts or whatever. I mean, the 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 live events are enormous, right? Enormous. So there's a I mean, lot run for of the roses had 85 courts in one place, all going at the same time, all going at the same time. So even that, courts, like, yeah. So let's think about teams. it this way: let's say there's 10 players on each court playing times 85, there's 850, right. and there's 15 games a day for three days. You know what I mean? Like that's it's it's insane. Yeah, we're we're literally talking thousands of players, and that's at one event. It's a one right? event. So if yeah, you go there's to multiple that event, events all over the country just, every day, for argument's sake of bad radio, twenty five hundred kids at this really large event. Hmm. How many of those kids are actually college basketball players? I think there are less legitimate college basketball players at those events than 
there are kids who believe they are college basketball players or that somebody believes they are college basketball players. So the number that was thrown to me was at best 20%. Yeah. One kid out of every, every starting lineup, you know, are like, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So on, on so team, every court kids. there's, there's, yeah. there's two kids on every court, one on each team. Mm-hmm. And so it, that sort of translates to this minor league theory, if you will, mm-hmm. those kids aren't going to get to go play unless we have nine other kids that they can mm-hmm. go play with. Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I've got to have that in order to evaluate them, but then that's going to create a nightmare for these college coaches because they then have to sift through the 80% who aren't. Mm-hmm. And you have to do that in a relatively short period. And so that's when I feel like we get into these snapshots. Like it's understandable why sure. we're it's making a the game. decisions that we're making. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you see a kid, you know, kick a trash can versus put trash in the trash can, then it's like, oh, okay, that, that registers with me. If you see a kid go left one time versus never go left, that's going to register with you. I'm not, I'm not saying that that shouldn't ever happen. I don't, right. I, not that we don't get it. But now we're talking about a, a, a more global issue here not just from one particular coach evaluating. Now we're talking about like a systematic issue of development within the sport of basketball. And I'm just going to go ahead and assume, and anybody out there is welcome, more than welcome to tell me I'm wrong with this, but I'm, I'm willing to bet this is the same thing with travel baseball, travel softball, seven on seven in football, the mm-hmm. like, because it's all going to be driven by money and all these other, you know, things. So if, 80% of the players at this event are not really recruitable for your particular level, quote unquote. Because even if you're a even if you're a a, a high like division one coach, you're not going to recruit the kids that can't play for you, right? So those mm-hmm. kids instantly become unrecruitable. Your and pool if becomes a, D, a lot smaller too. 100 percent If you're a D3 coach, you're not getting the, you know, you're not getting somebody going to Duke or South Carolina. So that limits who you can get. So you very quickly have to sort of filtrate down who your pool is. And so what are some alternatives to seem like, what do we do? Playmakers. Oh no. Three on three. Oh, just limit the actual space, constrain the number that's there and filter out like, okay, if I need to go see a seam play, because I want to recruit him, Mm -hmm. but he's on court 86 and he's the ninth player. And he only plays four minutes a game, but right. you know that's the kid that I'm after, and I don't get to see you. Then that creates another problem. And now I'm evaluating you sight unseen, or based off of my my buddy John over here who did see you, and I'm taking their word for it that you can go left, or that you can sit in a stance, or that you can sprint the floor, or that you jogged off the floor and high fived all your teammates on the way to the bench. And again, so you because again our eyes can't be everywhere. Right. But it just I think when you when you start to look at it from all these different perspectives, you can very I'm not going to say very easily, but I think you can more easily see why we're arriving at the issues that we're arriving at from, a again, a more holistic, systematic mm-hmm. like we've got a pro we've got a, a, a problem with our sport to this kid doesn't need to be here to this kid's not developing to. Mm-hmm. I can't evaluate this kid to their, you know, what even, even the, the more macro to, to micro issues. To, to sort of put a bow on it. Cause I think we have, 
plenty to talk about for the next time, but we've been going for about an hour. That 20% number is probably at the, at the highest levels where there's scholarship money involved. I think that's probably accurate. I think when you get to like the division three level, there are just sheer numbers. There are more schools in division three. Mm-hmm. And so there are more opportunities to play. That's kind of why division three exists mm-hmm. in a lot of places, right? The opportunity to play and continue to, to grow and learn and all of that stuff. That is constrained by the rules where you can't work with your players in the summer. Right. Now, some of that has changed, right? There's new legislation, Division Three, all of that. You get eight workouts outside your playing season. Like, hooray. You get eight workouts. It's more than we had, though. All that said, when there's not an intentionality behind what you're able to do when you're able to do it, and you're doing all the other stuff that everybody else is doing, all that is is just perpetuating how those players ended up with you in the first place because they were doing what everybody else was doing, which was going to play AAU, spending all this money doing all these events, not really getting all that better. They might feel like they are better because they are playing against 80 percenters who probably shouldn't be there. And those kids that shouldn't be there or kids that are not benefiting from being in that space are then being poorly evaluated based on their poor skill level that is not being developed. And so what you have then is an entire subset of this basketball, football, lacrosse, softball, whatever, youth sport population that is being mishandled and misevaluated and misdeveloped just based on the fact that this is what we do now. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to draw the line from where we are in youth to where we are in college. And yeah, you can put some of the blame on the athletes, but who's teaching them from the youngest ages? People in their influence, right? Their circles of influence, whether that is coaches, whether that's parents, whether that's society, whether that's, you know, Joe Schmo down the street saying, nah, you just got to do this. You got to play for my team. You got to, no. The kids that would benefit the most from something like Playmakers, where there is actual intentionality in the development, where there is a, 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 a streamlined curriculum that actually builds upon itself and a scope and sequence that helps you develop the skills that we've been talking about for the last hour and on the last one for an hour. Like We cannot gatekeep the game anymore as coaches. What we are doing right now, and I, and I would like to, I think this is a good place for us to wrap it up today. What we're doing right now is we are guarding our desks and calling it work. And we are gatekeeping the game from our players who are demanding more of us in their own development. Because remember, the central question for a really good player is how are you going to help me get better? And when we say, I'm going to help you get better by scattering cones on the floor and having you dribble around them, and giving you all these technique pointers. 
That ain't the way. I'll say that right now. It's just not the way. It might help you get marginally better. But like you talked about in the pre-show when we were talking about our player development philosophies and playmakers and kind of just what we've observed in, in the spaces that we've been in, players who are really, really good are really, really confident. How do you gain confidence? You gain it from competence in context. I can be the most confident person in the world dribbling around cones. Cones aren't going to fight back. So I might do that, and then maybe we'll play a little five-on-five. Maybe we'll do a little bit of this. We'll do a little bit of that. And then I go to this exposure weekend, and I get exposed because I don't know how to play. And there's no college coaches at my court, and I leave feeling that event dejected. And I may not have even played that much. But you know what? Marsha Freeze shouted me out because I cheered for my teammates. But is Marsha Freeze going to send me an offer? Absolutely not. No way. No way. No way on God's green earth are you going to get one of those. So now you're wasting time and you're wasting money. And then we've got coaches saying, well, we don't have time to develop our players right now. We We have the time. We've got to do this other stuff. No, you have the time. It's how you choose to spend it. It's, It's the priority on that time. We all get the same amount. Yep. So I think that's a good place for us to wrap up today. Um, but I think this is probably going to turn into a two-parter. Maybe we we go down some of the avenues that this one presented. But ultimately, like this is something I think you and I both feel really passionately about. And it's not just about playmakers. Like this whole thing wasn't one big ad for playmakers. It's not going to, if it doesn't move the ne- the needle, it is what it is. But the reality is, there is a better way to do this to where there are now going to be fair evaluations of players. But it takes reflection, awareness, clarity, and alignment from these coaches and from coaching staffs to know what they're evaluating for and how to develop the things that they think are important and communicate that to players so that we can have some longevity in some of these careers. But that's got to start from a very, very early age. And that, I mean, that's the only way that this is going to change.